Welcome to the Hearts of Flame podcast, your place for Catholic formation and spirituality. Join us here every week as we delve into the archives of Hearts of Flame Catholic Summer School, sharing lectures and talks on Catholic theology, philosophy and spirituality. Kia ora, welcome back to the Hearts of Flame podcast. My name's Tom and I'm a member of the Hearts of Flame planning team. This week we're starting a three-part lecture series on the Old Testament and the Mass. Uh, I thought this was a good one because in most of New Zealand, this is the first week in a while that parishes can offer public Sunday Masses. So this is a great opportunity to better understand the Mass and the Eucharist. This series was given by Peter Holmes at the 2019 school. Peter uh, also hosts the podcast This Catholic Life, which I highly recommend checking out. Before we get into the lecture, I quickly want to let you know how you can go into the draw to win a $50 Prezi card and help out Hearts of Flame. Just head to heartsofflame.org.nz forward slash survey and answer a few questions to help us make Hearts of Flame even better in the future. Everyone who completes the survey goes in the draw for the $50 Prezi card and uh, that prize will be drawn on Saturday the 9th of October. Let's now hear the first of three lectures from Peter Holmes on the Old Testament and the Mass. Okay, so what I was going to start with, and I had graphics for and we'll come back to later just to show you, was that the idea of sacrifice in the ancient worlds is not a new one when the Hebrews come across it. There's, there's something that's already been around for many thousands of years before. In fact, we have records, archaeological records, dating back far beyond our recorded history where they seem to have had human sacrifices, not just sacrifices, but human sacrifices. In fact, animal sacrifices aren't the predominant kind of sacrifice that's mentioned in the literature, uh, in the the archaeological digs and things like that. Human sacrifices seem to have been the big thing. Maybe it's because that was bigger than animal sacrifices, that's the one they recorded, but it seems to have been the big thing. What was the purpose? It seems to have been to appease the gods, if they were angry, if something was going wrong, there's an awful weather pattern or something like that, they're trying to appease the gods, and so they, um, they sacrifice humans. Um, and the other possibility is that they want to win favour. So we have a record for, if anyone's ever read um, the Iliad, Homer, there's a record of them, I mean, it's, it's legend, so who knows how much of it's legitimate, but basically there's a record of them um, is it Agamemnon was thinking about um, sacrificing a daughter in order to get the gods' favour to win the the wars against um, Troy? Troy. I, I'm not sure. Okay, well there, there you go. It, it stuck in my mind quite yeah, well, and it, and it, and the thing is, is that even when it was written, which was much later than the actual wars happened, um, I think it was only fifth or sixth century, um, it was still not abhorrent enough for them to not have it in a legend. You know, it was still something that people would go, oh, yeah, okay, that's, that's something that's done. Um, the, the idea of uh, sacrifice, and particularly human sacrifice, is not one that's died out. Thank you. Yes, yes, indeed. All right, so to appease the gods, to, to obtain some kind of favour, and in particular to consolidate power. It was um, a frequent thing that uh, a conquering army would come through and get the significant people from the opposing army and sacrifice them as a kind of last ritual act of conquest of the, of the last uh, culture that they just took over. To consolidate their power, 
And this, this gets particularly personal later, as we'll see. So we have graves from the Upper Paleolithic era, Paleolithic era in Europe. Uh, Egyptian, Romans, Mongols, etc., had funeral sacrifices so that when a major king or someone died, they would sacrifice their household, their servants, their wife, you know, some of their retainers and some priests would also be sacrificed and buried with them as a kind of a, um, to accompany them in their, their uh, obviously they're very important, being a king, where they're going is going to be very important so people would go with them, so to speak, in their, their ideology. Uh, there's that unpronounceable name from the Homeric legend that I've referred to. Um, the Shang dynasty apparently had um, human sacrifices up to the 10th century BC. Um, and then uh, the Vedic texts, which are the prelude to some of the current Hindu texts, uh, include human sacrifices in them. Um, they've just dug up um, so-called bog people from the Netherlands uh, from the 1st century AD, where there seems to have been human sacrifices and mummification happened there. And there's Japanese legends of human sacrifice up to the 17th century AD. So that's you know the 1600s AD, where they would sacrifice a human to appease the spirits. Uh, and the humans, this is a legend, no one's ever dug them up yet, but there would be a, a human sacrifice would be at the centre of the major castle or a bridge or something to, to ward off spirits. Um, You've probably heard about the Aztecs up to the point of the 15th century uh, AD where they sacrificed quite a number of people to, to appease their quite nasty deities or their ideas of nasty deities. And the, it was only the, the, well, the Spanish um, invaders really put a stop to that by wiping them out mostly, which is an unfortunate way to deal with it. But... <laughs> Uh, it's quite recent. So the idea of sacrifice is one that we're alien to in our culture and quite often when I talk about sacrifice in my classes, um, people get triggered uh, and I have a little, I didn't bring it to New Zealand, but I have a little model lamb that my wife has made me which has, you know, you can take out the intestines and stuff and we, we act out the sacrifice in class and, and I, have, I have to have a trigger warning and so some of my students leave the room because it's too confronting to them. It's a new thing that we don't deal with animal deaths. It's, it's a new human thing. that we, we are so distant from animal deaths from, from the reality of even of, of sacrifices. So our, our sensitivity to this is some sort of bizarre uh, point of history. Um, we talk, one of the things that I talked about in terms of power is human sacrifice over the, the, your own children. Um, in mythology, it's frequent. For those of you who have studied mythology will know it's frequent for the, the son of a deity to kind of rise up and usurp his power. Or he takes on his son and beats him and therefore retains his own power. And so one of the things that um, everyone up to the Romans was doing was they would sacrifice their firstborn son to, usually in the Old Testament times, to Moloch. It was a way of asserting the, the father's power over the family. And pretty much it's, I mean, it's a psychological thing too. You know, If you're the kid of the father, he goes, well, you saw, your, saw what I did to your older brother? Watch out. <laughs> so dad has the power. Even in the Roman uh, situation, the paterfamilias had the, the power to, of life or death over all the children. And one of the objections legally to abortion in the Roman Empire, they do, we're, we're arguing about it long before Christ, so it's not a new thing, but the, one of the arguments against abortion in the Roman Empire was that um, it took away the right of the father to decide life or death. 
Not that, not that they were opposed to killing babies, ironically, but that they said the father should get the choice, not the mother, which ironically we have reversed and we practice the same barbaric thing. But the point of it was uh, to, and again, this is very modern, that the parent would sacrifice the child in order to, to assert their own autonomy, their own power. It's about power over someone else, um, uh, asserting your sort of will, if you like, over these people. It's not a new thing. Um, when Nietzsche started rabbiting on about his ideas of power and the Superman, I, I, I'm seeing this in the Old Testament. Um, so, in Scripture, we see a, a, ver- a version of this in the uh, attempts to kill the Hebrew babies in Egypt. They're not just throwing the babies into the Nile. The Nile represented one of their... Like it, was, it was one of the power sources of Egypt. It, it represented the deities, the power of... A lot of their gods were wrapped up in this, this Nile. The Nile flooding and, and, and coming back down again was the cycle around which their life was built. So everything was in the Nile. So throwing babies into the Nile is not just to kill them, it's an act of sacrifice to their deity, or one of their deities. Um, Which, by the way, I wish I had time to go into it, but that's kind of the delicious irony of Moses being in in the Nile, but in a basket. Um, And it's the only time in the Bible that the word ark is used, apart from Noah, is Moses' basket. That his ark preserves him from the destructive waters. It's beautiful irony. And the fact that he's in the waters and then Pharaoh's own princess daughter comes and takes him out of the water and raises him in Pharaoh's own home. It's just it's delicious. Uh, <laughs> okay. There are several prohibitions against human sacrifices. There are several times the prophets say, oh, look at all these crazy pagans sacrificing their babies to Moloch. You guys have done it too. So when the Israelites went off the rails, it wasn't just that they were being a bit wacky or maybe having a guitar worship or something like that. They, um, they were, in fact, sacrificing their children to the deities, which is awful. Um, so coming to the Abraham and Isaac story is a very important uh, turning point, if you like, in the biblical literature. Ab- you know the story? God says to Abraham, it says God tested Abraham. How did he test him? He said, take your son, your only son, who you love, and sacrifice him on the mountain that I'll show you about. Now, a little bit of prehistory. Abraham and Sarah couldn't have any children, and there's this long, desperate struggle to have children, and there's kind of a a few mess-ups where Abraham pimps his wife out, and then there's... That sounds awful, doesn't it? He he pretends to be her sister... She's his sister, and there's all kinds of weird stuff going on there. And she says, maybe you have a child by your maid, and Hagar and Ishmael happen. Finally, finally, God blesses them through Sarah, and they have this son, Isaac, whose very name, by the way, means bubbling laughter, joy. Isaac means just the the laughter you hear when you, like the child's laughter, when they can't help but burst out of them. So, God says, tests Abraham with possibly the ultimate test any of us would ever face. And that's the point of the text. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, you know, laughter, happiness, who you love, just to rub it in, and sacrifice him. 
Now, I don't know about you, but if God asked me that sort of thing, my firstborn son happens to be called Isaac as well. <laughs> if God turned up and showed me that, I think I'd ask for some ID. I mean, just hang on, just, just checking God, because this is the son you're going to fulfill all the promises that you gave me, all of the, you know, be father of nations, all of this stuff. You're going, this is the one that's going to... Are you sure? But in the text, Abraham gets up early the next morning and heads off. Now, we don't get any insight into Abraham's emotions. But just take a, step, take a second to think about it. This is your only child who's going to fulfill all of the promises of God. You've been, he's had him in his old age. Ever, the gut-wrenching pain of that. He walks to the mountain with his son. Now, his son's very intelligent. and asks, oh, I can't go through the whole story, but you know the story. His son says, Dad, and he says, here I am, my son, which is the cry of a servant normally, and the father here is treating his son as the master. So you normally a servant would say, here I am, whereas Abraham says, here I am to his son, which shows his affection for his son. And his son says, we've got the fire, we've got the knife, we've got the wood, where's the sacrifice? And Abraham says, God will provide the sacrifice. True, is it? <laughs> yes, in a sense, because God has provided Isaac. Maybe Abraham's trusting in God, which was what the text thinks wants us to understand. So they get there, and you know the story. They, Abraham reaches out his hand, which in, in the Bible, whenever someone reaches out their hand to do something, it's slow motion. Right? It's like if you're watching a movie, it's that last moment before they pick up. So he reaches out his hand to take the knife, and as he's about to to take Isaac's life, God says, stop. The angel intervenes and says, no, you're not to do this. Don't lay a hand on the boy. Now, why tell the story that dramatically? And most of us go, why would God test someone so unfairly? That's outrageous. Why would God even suggest that there's a human sacrifice? In the context where every other religion has human sacrifice, specifically of the firstborn son, this story is deliberately told and clearly the test actually happened. It's not just a made-up story, but it's deliberately set up to make the point. This is the way Hebrews think and learn by stories and accounts where something there's an exception made. What's the exception in Abraham's case? What happens to Isaac? He's spared. Why? Something else. Something else. There's a ram that's provided. There's a substitute provided for the sacrifice. This is the point. There's a substitute provided for the sacrifice. This is the first time I've seen this come up as, a, as an issue in ancient literature. Sure, you can sacrifice to appease gods. You can sacrifice to get power. But the whole idea of substitution comes in here. Now, the son is spared, not because he, you know, there wasn't that uh, that responsibility there or power or danger or whatever, but because of the sacrifice, sorry, the substitution. Now, this becomes an important part of the biblical approach to sacrifices, the substitution. There are many surprises in the text, by the way, which we'll come back to, but some of which you'll recognise just as I say them, like the fact that Abraham lays the wood of the sacrifice and that's the way it's worded in Hebrew, lays the wood of the sacrifice on Isaac's shoulders. And Isaac carries the wood of the sacrifice up the hill. 
there's, uh, that Isaac is bound and he makes no sound, no protest. Now, if I were Isaac, I'd be going, oh, Dad, we had a talk about the sacrifice and um, <laughs> you seem to think... Anyway. And he doesn't say anything. He is also silent before God and, and his faith is complicit in that. That moment, by the way, is the moment that every part of the scripture looks back to as the example of faith, as the definition of faith. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That he was prepared to give everything over to God. So, God allows the substitutionary sacrifice. The sacrifice is available to all and the penalty applies to all. These are the principles in Egypt. Um, Sorry, I've, I've jumped a little bit. We're getting to now the Passover sacrifices in Egypt. I'm having to jump because we've got little time. But in Egypt, God, the firstborn son, becomes an issue again. All of the sons get thrown into the Nile by the Egyptians, but the irony is that God turns it around and he says all firstborn sons belong to God and he's going to take them. The angel of death will come through unless, what happens? How do the Israelites get around this? They mark the door with the blood of the lamb, the sacrifice. Okay, The firstborn lamb is sacrificed and it substitutes for the son in that house. The firstborn lamb's blood is placed on the lentil. The lintel, is that the right word? The lint? I always feel like I'm using the wrong, like a chocolate or something. But <laughs> the lintel of the, the door and the frame. And um, uh, we, do you guys still use the epiphany chalk for this? You, so write the epiphany chalk on, on the frame of your door frame? Which is kind of a, a cool um, version of this. The substitution is allowed and the angel of the Lord passes over that house. And again, it's not that the firstborn isn't due to God, but that God has permitted the substitution sacrifice, the Passover lamb. Now, what's interesting about this is this was available to all. Theoretically, had an Egyptian gone, wow, this God's obviously the right one, he could have joined it. It wasn't just, you don't have the right genes, you're not in the right race, you're out. Anybody who joined the Israelites could join their worship practice and receive the grace that comes with it. Now, the importance of flesh and blood here is worth looking at. What did they do with the blood? They put it on the doors and they also sanctified the place. They, They sprinkled, ritually sprinkled some of the blood. What do they do with the body of the sacrifice? They ate it. How much of it did they eat? All of it. Everything had to be eaten. And if they couldn't eat it, they had to get other people in to finish it off. They had to eat it in order to receive the full benefits of the sacrifice. Okay? So they sprinkled the blood and they ate the sacrifice. The other thing is, is that very clearly tied up with this flesh and blood is this word remembering. They have to remember the sacrifice. So what do they have to do? In future years, you must remember the Lord by by participating in the sacrifice. Now, when a Jewish family remembers the Passover, they don't just go, oh, yeah, it was like back then. 
Who of us can remember stuff that's happened 2,000 years ago? We weren't there. So what does it mean to remember it? It must mean something different than what we think, was we think of calling to mind something that we have previously experienced, which is not what remembering means in the scripture. What does it mean to be a member of something? You, you pay, pay your membership and therefore you are privy to the rights and responsibilities of that thing. You belong to it, but you, you also have to keep your membership up, keep remembering, and that's literally what it is, to renew membership to re-enact, but also you re-participate in something. When you remember it in the Old Testament sense, you participate in that thing. You, re, you bring it to life again in your own life. Not just your life, clearly, because the Israelites were not individualists. It was about the community. You, as the community, you get together and you re- remember it. So when um, I visited, actually, a, an atheistic Jewish family, who are friends of mine, when they were practicing the Passover, ironically, they still pack their bags and have them at the door. Because it says in the scriptures, have your bags packed in the Passover. They still enact all of the rituals. Why? What's the, what's, what is it with the bags packed? Why, would, why did the people in Israel, Egypt, sorry, have to have their bags packed? Ready to go. Because that very night... They, they have to be ready to go because the next day, gone. And that's, by the way, why they weren't allowed to make bread with yeast. Because yeast, you have to wait for it to rise. You have to wait around. And also it can go off when you're traveling. You make flat bread, no yeast. We eat it. It's quick to make and we can eat it straight away and we can carry some of it with us if we need to. In other words, the point of yeastless bread, the, the hard bread, is this. We're eating this now, salvation tomorrow. It's the imminence of God's redemption. God is coming tonight to save us. We eat this and we're gone. And they eat in travel clothes and in the, in the ancient world, if you would wear the robes, you know the, the ones you see. And if you heard the phrase, gird your loins, yeah, if you were going to fight, you'd reach down and grab your, your hem, hoik it up, tie your thing around your waist so that basically everything was wrapped around your your loins and your legs are free and you're ready to fight or run or whatever you had to do. They're eating the feast, everything wrapped up, ready to run. (laughs) Okay, They're ready to go because right now we're out of here. The remembering is not just sitting there recalling something. It's we're here. We are here in this feast. We are renewing, if you like, our participation, our ownership of and being a part of this redemption. And not that I win it for myself, but that I'm claiming God's redemption for me. So when they get to Sinai, Sinai is the mountain on which Moses uh, brings um, God's revelation to them. And you all know the part about the Ten Commandments, I'm sure. Uh, It's very important to note, by the way, that God's covenant with the people on Sinai, there's about 20 verses where the Ten Commandments are uh, proclaimed. And almost the rest of Exodus and Leviticus and a good portion of Numbers is liturgical. So you get a couple of verses of moral codes. I'm exaggerating. There's about 20 verses of Ten Commandments and then there's about five chapters of practical applications of those commandments in their context. And then there's liturgy. Why do you think God is so concerned about liturgy? 
when he's setting up, remember, he's setting up a people to worship him, but also to be his own nation. Why would he be so concerned and spend so much time on liturgy? Surely you tell them the Ten Commandments and go, go on, off, off you go. Oh, and remember me sometimes. No, he spends a lot of time setting up the liturgy. Why would that be? Okay, the interesting you use the word set apart there. There's another word in scripture that means that. When God says holy, what does he mean? What does holy mean? Do we even know these days what holy means? Seriously, do we have anything that's holy? Sacred? What, what does sacred mean? It literally is the same word, by the way. <laughs> but what does sacred mean? Not necessarily adored, because I can adore my wife. Protected. Sorry? Protected. protected from blemish. blemish. Yeah, although that's, that's more about purity. It's like reserved for God's use. Yes. Yeah, we're getting there. Perfect and pure, that's, that's a different category. Reserved for God. And the, the literal word is set apart. The original word of, in Hebrew means to set apart for a particular purpose. Now, something about holiness to remember is it's not just something that makes things glow, like, oh, you know, angels. Holiness is always set apart for a particular purpose. Something is never just holy. It's a transitive verb. It means holy for what? What's its purpose? What's the point of it? Yes. In particular ways, though. In particular ways. So... Here's the radical change. Up until now, you've had holy uh, people set aside things for deities. If you wanted to um, impress a deity, and of course, I'm, you understand I'm talking here about fictional deities, but the, if you're an ancient person and you wanted to impress the deity of the sky or something, you go up to the top of the mountain, because, you know, God's like a view, and you build a little garden, and you put your statue, you build a little sort of clay or iron statue of this deity and put it in your garden, and you make a garden around it to impress your deity, give it some gifts or something, and then you say, hey, God, I've got a banana, how about some rain? You know, it's kind of a quid pro quo kind of thing. God reverses the whole thing with us. And again, I don't have a lot of time to go into it, but think about the second account of creation. Who gets made from clay? Not a God, but man. When man, rather than man trying to make an image of God out of clay, God makes an image of himself out of clay, and it is man. Rather than man trying to impress God by making a garden around the clay idol, God puts man in the garden. Instead of us trying to impress God with something, God basically gives us the whole world as our garden and says, go on. Now, all he's looking for is the relationship with us. How does that work? Here's the problem. You can't just conduct a relationship however you would like it to be. I'm married. I've been married for 24 years. (laughs) The only reason I've been married for 24 years is I occasionally listen to my wife about how she likes to be loved. 
If I didn't listen to her, we would be divorced many times over. <laughs> because I'm rubbish at figuring out what she needs. And that's the true of almost every human being. You have to understand from the person how they need to be loved. Except God who made us and knows how we need to be loved more than we do. We, when we are left to our own devices about how to love God, we almost always make it about us and we almost always mess it up badly. The golden calf is the first example. They're sitting around going, um, um, we obviously got out of Egypt and they didn't say, let's go back to worshiping pagan gods. They said, here's a calf. Here is your God, O Israel, the one who brought you out of Egypt. They're theoretically worshiping the same God. So when everyone says, do you worship the same God? There's only one question is how does he want to be worshipped golden calf no apparently not the way to do it in fact it gets um, Aaron in lots of trouble God makes it clear on Sinai that the only proper way to worship him is in the, with his appointed minister his appointed place his appointed people his appointed ritual and ceremony and the ongoing service of God, which is designated by him, which is the proper fruits of that worship. Now, do you understand the difference between ritual and ceremony? Who, who can tell me what the difference between ritual and ceremony is? It's literally what you say and what you do. So the ritual is the, the words, and the ceremony is how you do it, like the, the actions at least in this definition. Um, there's an excellent book by Monsignor Peter Elliott called Ceremonies of the Modern Roman Rite, which goes into the, the physical actions and the physical material parts of our mass and, and the other liturgies. Now, God is very, very particular about worship. As I said, Leviticus is almost completely about how to worship. And therefore, most people who go, I'm going to read the Bible, they come and tell me, I'm going to start from scratch and read through. And about two months later, they go, I got stuck at Leviticus. <laughs> so many things happening and I don't understand what the goat's done to deserve it. <laughs> um, lots of things happening. God is so particular. And when you get to the prophets later, they're so angry about the way they treat widows and orphans and liturgy. The two big things, liturgy and social justice, basically, how you treat widows and orphans. Widows and orphans are the weakest of that society, and they're the ones that pretty much cop it first when things go bad. But why liturgy? I get the whole justice thing. Why liturgy? Because liturgy is the language of love. Liturgy is literally how to love God. Every relationship is actually a liturgy. Little rituals and ceremonies all the way through it. You can't be in a relationship with someone for more than about a week before you start falling into habits. If I had to make up some new way of talking to my wife every morning, I would go insane or we wouldn't be together. <clears throat> Literally every morning, um, I wake up and say, good morning, lovely. And if I don't, she says, what's wrong? <laughs> Not because any, either of those things are uh, significant in themselves, but the ritual is important because, it, firstly, of all the times in the day, if I had to measure her lo loveliness on a graph, 
morning would not be the time that she's peaking. <laughs> and yet, which I've chosen to say that that time in the morning because it affirms the reality, the truth, which underpins my attitude and my relationship with her. And even if I'm, and this is really important, especially when I'm not feeling it. Especially, not just when I feel like it. People go, oh, it should be spontaneous, it should be from the heart. No, no. If you go from the heart, your relationship will last as long as a cycle of hormones, right? <laughs> Basically, it reaffirms the fundamental facts of why I'm there. Now, that's a very trivial example. I mean, it's not trivial because it's marriage, but it's, not, it's a trivial example compared to our relationship with God. Liturgy preserves our relationship with God. It puts it in the right place. It puts us rightly disposed to God, and it preserves our right relationship with God. And it shouldn't just be when we feel like it. It's wonderful if you happen to feel warm, gushy feelings about your spouse, but you should say it anyway. You should do love anyway. It's wonderful if you feel wonderful, warm feelings about God as you worship. It's wonderful. It's a good thing. But when you don't, it's more important to say the words, to do the rituals, because these things preserve and conserve our love and point us in the right direction and restore us to the point where that love can you know, come and go as it has to, but the actual love, the physical and... Uh, Willful love happens. So God preserves us from ourselves, from our own whims, from our own silliness, and frankly, from our selfishness. Because the first thing that almost always happens to worship is we try and make it about us. When people say, I want to get into the contemporary... Now, there's nothing wrong with us using our current skills, our current art to, to worship God. However, when people say, I want it to be more about our culture, you go, Really? Is this offering a service to the universal church? Is this a beautiful thing of art which I have to offer to the whole church? And would everyone else in every other part of the world be, think this is amazing, this gift you bring to the church? No, not always. Certainly not in my suburbs I live in. Usually it's just because I feel more comfortable this way. I want to worship God this way. And as I said, if I did this with my wife, we wouldn't be married. If I said I feel better about being a husband if I get to do it from this armchair more comfortable i feel like i like this particular kind of music now i have to say also spotify has done wonderful things for my marriage do you know, do you know what spotify is mm -hmm. itunes basically um i love particular kinds of music my wife doesn't so much so having different playlists has also made it possible for us to coexist <laughs> again before we had that which was quite a, a significant part of our marriage we just had to learn from each other about what works. Now, if God's telling us, this is the way to worship me, this is the way it works, we should pay attention to that. Sometimes we can't see the wisdom of it, but if someone's going to know the answers to this and know the way that he wants to be loved, it'll be God. The reason I'm harping on this and the reason I'm harping on about Leviticus is we're going to spend a bit of time in Leviticus um, talking about the rituals that God puts in place because I think you'll see them in the Mass. Uh, as I said, prophets, priests and people um, 
talk about worship in the Old Testament, but worship is not owned by the worshippers. They must participate in it, they have to own it themselves, but true worship is about what's true about us and God. False worship denies who God is and denies who we are and denies the relationship. Interesting that in the scriptures, false worship almost always leads in the mistreatment, sorry, to the mistreatment of widows and orphans. And they represent all people who are vulnerable, basically. False worship almost always leads to the mistreatment of the vulnerable in society. Why would that be? Just can you think of any reason why that would be? If we mess with worship, it doesn't take very long, less than a generation before the vulnerable people in society suffer, even in our community. Yep. If you don't, can't get your relationship with God right, the rest of it falls down, yes. Yep. So if my relationship with my wife suffers, my parenting is going to suffer. And, my, and if I'm a child, my relationship with my parents is going to suffer if, if that can't happen. Yep. Yes, very much so. Because if we've put God out of the equation, who's left? It's just us. It's about me. Um, It's a very common thing to hear these days, I don't get anything out of Mass. Really? Did Christ give himself to you in body and blood? Well, then you got the most important thing you could ever get in the entire universe. Um, Now, admittedly, it's nice when the music matches the majestic gift you've just got. (laughs) It's nice when the liturgy proclaims the majestic thing that's just happened. But you've still received God's own gift. What's even more interesting is that false worship defiles the land. Now, defile is a very strong word. It means not just profanes, not just takes it from holy to ordinary. I I haven't spelled that out, have I? Um, whiteboard, excellent. Just making sure I'm not going to write popping permanent here. There's stuff that's holy. There's stuff that's ordinary, which is, just, oh, I'm going to call it normal, but that's not, actually I won't call it normal, it's a silly word. What have I got? Where is it? Thank you. I'll call it the name that it is, it's profane. It sounds awful, but it actually just means ordinary. This pen is profane. Um, And then there's unholy or unclean. Profane or mundane just means ordinary, just nothing. Um, Holy means to be set aside for something specific, set aside for a particular purpose. Now, it's something as ordinary as a piece of cake is profane because it's just ordinary. But if my wife says, this is set aside for dad, he hasn't, he isn't home yet, so no other child can eat it. Now, I have a few children, so it's frequent that there's no cake left when I get home. <laughs> now, usually what my wife does is sets aside one slice and says, that's for dad. Now, All of the kids know if you mess with that slice, it's no longer profane. They have messed with something. Now, why is that an issue? Because it's about how they regard me. It's about their relationship with me. And when one of them takes the cake, the others are, oh, Dad's going to be upset. So it's about the relationship, right? 
So when something is set aside, and it's a very trivial example, but when something's set aside for God, that becomes about his, our relationship with him. And it's a, it's a conduit, if you like, a way in which the cake isn't me, but it's a kind of a representation because it's set aside for me. When something's set aside for God, you can't use it as if it were ordinary. If we set aside a particular, particularly impressive cup, which we call a chalice, for the use of for God's use in the Mass, you can't just use it for a Coke. There's nothing wrong, apart from the normal poisonous stuff in Coke, there's nothing wrong with drinking a Coke, but if you drink it out of the chalice which is set aside for God, it's to profane it, which means treat something which is set aside for God as if it's profane, as if it's ordinary. And then there is, of course, to defile, means to pull it all the way down here to unholy and unclean. False worship doesn't just profane, it defiles because it takes something that should be good and holy, that is our relationship with God or the things that bring us to that, and reverses it, undermines it, destroys it, defiles it. Not only defiles us and the place we're in, but the land. Now, the land represents... What's the land also called? It's called the something land. The promised land. It represents kind of the end game where God has promised us Land flowing with milk and honey, all the good stuff that comes out of worship of God gets defiled by false worship. This, these are big stakes we're playing for here. It's not a small thing. Um, it, it's a, this is one of the reasons why God's so particular about it. So, are we, I'm going to give you a hint, uh, a, a teaser for, for next time. How, how close are we? Ah, five minutes, good. As I said, pointed place, pointed people, pointed ritual. Um, the holy of, this is the holy place, the temple. Uh, they didn't have these lines, that's just for our measurements, the, the diagonal lines. You would enter through here if you're a, a, a Jew in good standing, uh, I mean, not, not defiled yourself in some way or not made yourself unclean ritually. So you'd have to purify yourself. But if you wanted to come in here, families would come in here and offer the sacrifices. They would approach a priest. Uh, we're going to act this out tomorrow. Um, we're going to... Not physically. I don't have any lambs. Um, <laughs> yes, um, <laughs> no, I don't even have my toy one. I wasn't sure how customs would deal with that. So <laughs> bringing a lamb into the country. But... Um, the, this ritual that happens here will we'll go over um, uh, tomorrow, but it involves five separate sacrifices, um, which, will have, which everyone who came into the temple was engaged with. And these happened daily. At least one happened daily because the king was required to provide the sacrifice daily, but everyone else could come in and offer a separate sacrifice. So this would happen constantly through the day. And different priests were on call and would, would step up and be involved in this. Uh, their purification water, and then this is the holy place. So this tent here is the holy place where the priests who were cast um, into the role by lots, in other words, the randomly chosen priests would approach the altar of incense and the, the lampstand. And the altar of incense is a representative of a particular kind of prayer in the holy place. Who, what do we know about something that happened next to the altar of incense? Sorry, the table, there's the altar of incense there. 
something happened in the New Testament, right next to the altar of incense. Zachariah. Yes. Zechariah was a priest chosen by Lot, and he was standing in the holy place. So he wasn't just casually wandering around in the temple. Um, he had prayed for a child. He was standing next to the altar of incense, which is the altar of prayer. And he's offering up as close as you can get, by the way, without being the high priest, because only the high priest goes in here. And an angel appears to him and answers his prayer. And then he goes, but hang on, how can I be sure? You send me a sign? And the angel says, you mean a sign like an angel appearing in the holy place of God? (laughs) I'm an angel and I came straight from God to tell you. Anyway. (laughs) And then this curtain is called in our our, um, uh, English translations or veil. We have this image of it kind of being a chiffon waving in the breeze or something it was so thick it's a very like a hemp woven um, veil and it was almost certainly like this like a, a two curtains sort of interwoven so you'd have to kind of squeeze your way through the middle um, it's one of those ones where you, you literally you can't just accidentally fall in or something you have to kind of go in the whole thing, I'm told, is about a foot thick by the time you've got both of the curtains kind of together. So you're not just talking about wavy curtains in the breeze or something. It's fully... So the high priest would go in through this curtain, and that also appears in Hebrews 10, where it talks about going through the veil, which is his flesh, which is Christ's flesh. Um, and also... This is not from the Bible, it's from extra-biblical sources from the Jewish literature. Apparently, it was a custom to tie a rope to the high priest's leg when he went in to the temple, um, to the the Holy of Holies, because if he had a heart attack or fell over or something in there, went to sleep, no one was going in there to get him. They just sort of pull him out. (laughs) It was was that serious in terms of the holiness of the place. Um, Who knows what actually happened in the Holy of Holies? I mean, it's, imagine if you were the high priest and you kind of get all in there and you've purified yourself and you go in there with the sacrifice. You've got blood of the sacrifice when you go in. You get there and go, what do I do now? <laughs> there was instructions for this passed on from high priest to high priest. Do you know what they did? They took the blood of that one sacrifice, which was sacrifice for the whole of Israel, and they put it on the horns of the, the Ark of the Covenant, which is the altar, and it had another name, this Ark the middle part, there were angels on both sides, but in the middle, there was a, a flat part, and that was called the mercy seat. Now, firstly, what do you do with a seat? Yeah, the priest didn't sit on it. There's a tip. Why was it called a mercy seat then? Yeah, someone sat on it, at least ritually. God, it's, it's the throne of God. Literally, the Ark of the Covenant is the throne of God from which he dispenses mercy. So the high priest comes in with the, with the blood. That's my crack of death. Um, it means we've got 10 minutes of it. And put the sacrifices before God. And God received the atoning sacrifice for the whole of Israel once a year in the Day of Atonement, the Yom Kippur. It's the, the day that, by the way, the Jews still celebrate, the Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement. Uh, they don't have sacrifices because the only place in the world that they can sacrifice is the temple in Jerusalem, which doesn't exist. So, 
the time that God says, the place, um, the person, the ordained minister, and the people specifically. There's all of the things which are set aside for God. Uh, we're going to keep coming back to that set aside part, the, the, um, the ways you use holy things. So there are two possible sins against something that's holy. I'll finish up with this. If a chalice is set aside for God in the Mass, what are the two ways we could sin against it? I mean, there's two, probably hundreds of ways, but two categories of ways. Uh, that's one of the ways. So profaning, in other words, using it for something that's ordinary or defiling it. So in other words, misusing it is one of the ways we could sin against it. It's another way. If God had set aside the chalice and said, this chalice is for my mass, and we went, yay, look at this holy chalice, and then never did anything with it. It's set aside for the mass. So what are we supposed to do with it? Use it. Say mass, right? To not use something for what it's set aside for is the other side of the coin. So in other words, to use thing as, a, as it's supposed to be for what for its intended purpose for exactly what God said it should be used for is the proper use of a holy item its holiness comes from the fact it's set aside for that purpose that specific purpose that gets really tricky when you get to us because we're supposed to be holy we're going to talk about that the last day so tomorrow we're going to go into the details of this part, the ordinary daily sacrifice which all Jews were involved with. Uh, and we'll go through, step through each one of the sacrifices and I'll point out exactly how they relate to our Mass. And then uh, we'll talk about what the outflowing of that, the holiness um, in terms of worship uh, and the peripherals. And um, hopefully by then you will have brought me your questions and we can answer those by the third day. Any questions on that so far? It's all very dry and... Yep? So what was done with the blood you were saying when they, when they did take it into the mercy seat? Uh, it was smeared on the, on the horns of the altar as the first and, and it was also... Um, there's, there's a technical word which means poured or sprinkled against the altar. Splashed is probably a better way of saying yeah. it. So like Moses did... That's right. At Sinai, when he said, this is the blood of the covenant, you've heard those words before, but Moses sacrificed the the bull, I think it was, and he says, this is, he's got a bowl of blood, which they catch out of the the bull's neck. This is the blood of the covenant. And he's taken a a branch of um, hyssop, I think it is, or something like that, dipped it in and just gone and flicked it at them, got it all over them and said, this is the blood of the covenant by which God binds you to this agreement, this covenant. Now, do you, has anyone ever told you what a covenant is? Do you know how to make a covenant in the old? When um, Abraham makes one with God at one stage, they cut animals in two, and they put one side on one side and the other on the other. And Abraham walks, or sorry, God and Abraham walk through the middle, and the, it's an ancient form of covenant because you're saying, "This do this to me if I break the deal." And when, you, when you're sacrificing an animal as part of a covenant, you're saying, this is my fate if I mess up this deal. Covenants are serious things. We still have tiny remnants of it in a little children's um, 
Has anyone ever said to you, cross my heart, hope to die? Stick a needle in my eye? That is literally a version of the old uh, oaths of calling down disaster on yourself if I, if I fail to do this. Now, Christ told us not to do it, of course. But <laughs> the ancient people used to get a knife and hold it to their eye and say, may God do this to me, or even worse, if I fail to do that. Yep. Why does the wash basin back I'm sorry, that's a bizarre question. <laughs> no, it's, um, it, well, it's appropriate because you've got animals here. Has you, have you seen a cow? Yes. Yeah, they're, they're not small. <laughs> and if you're sacrificing a, a bull, um, and let's say, you know, it's a busy time in Jerusalem, you've got how many, you know, hundreds of families coming to sacrifice bulls, you need a bit of space. Yeah. And there's only so much place on the altar. You could have four going at once, but you've only got one place enough space on the altar, so people would go to the outer areas where priests would be waiting. I'm getting a bit into tomorrow's lesson here. And most of the original um, sort of slaughtering would be done outside here, and then you'd bring the sacrifices and the blood to the altar to dispense with it. And then after the sacrifice, you've got to come back and wash up. But it's not just a physical washing because they weren't so concerned with the same things as we are. A cubit is um, elbow to here. Hmm, that's a good question. It's not that big. Like it, for our measurements, it's not that big. Um, yeah. So a cubit is the, this length. So what's that? Thirty centimeters? No more. Fifty. Half a meter, so you're probably at 50 meters long. Yeah, it's not a big thing, although the altar was quite big and it was uh, burning most of the time. Um, incense would be offered here. The table with the the priest's bread, the way bread, would be here, um, and we'll come to that next time. And then the lampstands here. There you go. Not bad. So that's only one part of it, and these are obviously only one part of the sacrifices, but I, I'm asserting to you and hinting for ne next week's session, sorry, next week, I'm in university mode, um, tomorrow's session, that we're going to look at the five sacrifices because they are the daily sacrifice in the temple, and they form the daily ritual of the relationship between God and his people, and therefore they set up the relationship between God and his people, and of course, therefore, they are the most relevant um, model, if you like, for our daily sacrifice. That was Peter Holmes giving the first of three lectures on the Old Testament and the Mass. Parts two and three of his lecture series will be in our next two episodes. I just want to give a huge thank you to everyone who has listened and subscribed to the Hearts of Flame podcast so far. Please help us get the word out about this podcast by sharing it with your friends and family, uh, putting it up on social media, and letting people know that this is the place to come for great Catholic formation. Just one final reminder as well, head to heartsofflame.org.nz forward slash survey to go in the draw for a $50 Prezi card and help us make Hearts of Flame even better. That's it for this week. We'll be back next week with Lecture 2 of the Old Testament and the Mass. Until then, God bless.